0: This is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. COVID-19 is spreading across Maryland and our country. How we all respond to this crisis will determine how many lives we can save. That's why the government's response urgently needs to be guided by the expertise of our public health experts. During these difficult times, the ACLU of Maryland is here to defend and protect our civil rights and our civil liberties. We are providing guidance to our elected officials so that they can craft a COVID-19 response that is compassionate and protects the populations most vulnerable to harm, including immigrants and those caught up in the legal justice system, as well as all Maryland voters. Today, we'll talk to Sonia Kumar, a senior staff attorney. Amy Cruz, our legal program manager and director of our election protection program, and Nick Tite steiner our staff attorney. These experts are a few of the ACLU staff members working tirelessly to uplift people's humanity and rights during this COVID-19 crisis. So, Sonia, thank you so much for joining us for Thinking Freely. Thank you for having me. Um, we wanted to talk about, you know, some of the pressing issues that we're working on during this COVID-19 pandemic.
1: You know, I think we all are painfully aware that the, uh, you know, our public health um, experts and uh, key government officials have been telling us all that the status quo is not okay and we have to take various steps to protect ourselves, including social distancing, Uh, extra hygiene measures and the like. And um, one of the uh, key figures in Maryland, of course, is the governor who has uh, issued a number of executive orders and taken other steps, uh, uh, putting sort of uh, boundaries and uh, requirements in place for how we're all operating and sort of implementing those uh, public health recommendations. As of March 18th, the governor hadn't taken any action relating to the thousands of people who are incarcerated in Maryland's prisons and jails. And this was a really uh, critical concern and continues to be a really critical concern because of the unique vulnerability of people in our places of detention to both the spread of the virus as well as the risk of harm if they contract the virus. A group of, uh, a really growing group of coalition members, of uh, advocacy organizations, public health experts, and the like all came together to urge the governor to take swift steps to limit the number of people going into places of detention, uh, take steps to release anyone who could safely be released, um, and, and then take other additional steps to uh, uh, protect those who remain
0: inside. Alicia, can you just elaborate? Like, who was a part of that coalition, and you know, some of the individuals who signed on to that letter?
1: Sure. So it's been um, it's been incredibly uh, powerful to see that. I think at this point there are several do- dozen organizations, including Disability Rights Maryland, the Public Justice Center, uh, the Family Support Network, the Maryland Prisoners' Rights Coalition. Um, and a law law enforcement action partnership. Um, So, you know, a really sort of broad range of folks, including folks who are uh, very directly impacted by the criminal legal system and and, uh, have loved ones in prisons and jails. And um, and then in addition to all of these, you know, sort of formal organizations, we've had uh, hundreds of individuals ranging from, you know, professors to public health experts to family members, Uh, uh, and other advocates to just general members of the public urging the governor to take action.
0: You know, as we've been doing this advocacy uh, around this issue, um, a common, you know, thought has been coming up about that people who are in prison are actually safer um, in a a jail or in a prison than they would be out in the community. Can you tell me a bit about why, you know, that's actually not a good idea?
1: You know, one thing that's really important to understand is A crisis in our prisons and jails affects all of us. I think there's a myth that uh, it's sort of like if the virus gets into the prisons and jails, that's fine. Those are closed systems. It won't it won't affect those of us who are outside in the world. And part of what's really important to understand is that's just absolutely untrue. If our prison and jail systems uh, become you know uh, are ravaged by the virus, what will happen is they will stress the entire medical system. they will, they will, you know, the number of beds for people who need acute care are, is limited. Um, and the more cases we have in our state, whether they are inside or outside of the jails, the more those facilities will be stretched. Uh, the other thing is, of course, that is a matter of just a practical matter um, prisons and jails do involve a lot of back and forth in terms of staff and other people who are necessary to the basic functioning of those facilities. So what uh, public health experts and medical officials have have tried to help us all understand is that, first of all, you can't practice any, most of the social distancing measures if you're in prisons and jails, right? That's one of the core things. Second, prisons and jails are uh, generally not well-maintained and are difficult to maintain in light of the number of people who live in them. Um, Third is that uh, the medical... Sort of the quality and access to medical care in prisons and jails is already extremely stressed. And uh, there just isn't the capacity to provide even basic screening and testing to quickly and early on identify potential cases. One of the sort of myths that we've been hearing about our prisons and jails is that we don't need to worry about them because no cases have been reported in Maryland. Um, And I think there's two really obvious responses to that. One is that in every other context, what we've been told over and over again is that Prevention is the most important thing, right? As soon as we start identifying cases, we know that we're in trouble. And every moment really matters to protect, uh, to flatten the curve of the of the virus's spread. I mean, I think the other point that's really a point important is what we are hearing is that there is virtually no actual screening or testing happening that would allow us to identify those cases. And so part of what's really important to understand is that, you know, um, in other systems, we might be seeing reported cases in part because they are actually testing people. If we're not testing people, of course, we're not identifying them. Um, and so I think, you know, what both, you know, public health experts, corrections experts, um, and uh, sort of the rest of us who are informed by then have been saying is, it's not a matter of if the virus is going to be getting into our facilities; it's a matter of when. Um, so you really have in jails and prisons the perfect storm for a rapid spread and transmission of the, of the virus. And uh, that's why it's so important for us to be doing everything possible to limit the number of people who are in our facilities.
0: So Sonia, what have we been, been hearing from, you know, people who are either incarcerated themselves or people who have loved ones who are inside? What have we been hearing from them about the situation?
1: I think the first thing to remember is everybody we're all concerned and that's no different for people inside and their loved ones. And I think for folks inside and their loved ones, there's this sort of added dimension of a complete lack of control um, in terms of the ability to take steps to protect themselves and protect their loved ones. Um, and and that's sort of further compounded, compounded by the extreme secrecy um, that operates in our prisons and jails. And so, you know, public health experts have, educated us all about the, uh, particularly vulnerable populations, uh, you know, folks over 60 people with certain kinds of underlying medical conditions. And it's important that we all remember that, uh, there are people with those vulnerabilities in our jails and prisons. Um, another uh, really important point about the sort of the racial dynamics of all of this um, that I think um, have not gotten nearly enough attention is that uh, some of the underlying conditions that make us uh, that make certain people more vulnerable to um, uh, serious harm if they contract the virus are things like hypertension and diabetes um, or other issues that are uh, disproportionately prevalent in the Black community. So there's already sort of a heightened risk there. And then in our, uh, you know, in our prisons and jails, we have a very disproportionate racial composition. So we've, you know, 70% of our prison system is populated uh, uh, by Black people in Maryland, um, even though Black people make up only about 30% of our, our state's population generally, um, so there's a real fear about the uh, potential harm to folks inside. Um, the The one other sort of, I think that the issues that we've heard about from folks inside, their families, and and other advocates working with them are, you know, there are uh, people don't feel that they're getting enough in terms of um, hygiene supplies and and steps to sort of help maintain sanitation in the facility. Uh, There's a concern that, you know, no one is being adequately screened or tested, either guards or uh, people who are incarcerated. And um, and also that there's no apparent effort to uh, bolster medical capacity in ways that um, suggest that the systems would be better prepared. Uh, if and when the virus enters our our uh, our places of detention,
0: and actually, so so can you actually just elaborate on um, the the lack of like the lack of access to hygiene that some um, people who are currently incarcerated um, have to deal with on a daily basis, and how you know that's really exacerbated during this COVID nineteen crisis.
1: Absolutely. So I think. I mean, the first thing is like we have to ground ourselves in the reality of what places of detention are actually like. And so they are already places where um, they tend to be very poorly maintained. They're often overcrowded. Uh, People pay, you know, full price for, um, you know, just just very sort of analogous to what we pay in the outside world for hygiene items and for food, um, even though they may make only sort of sense. Uh, a day. Um, there are already really major barriers to people sort of having access to the things that they need. Part of what folks have been uh, urging our prisons and jails to do is to make those supplies um, available free of charge. So, for example, providing free soap, but also providing uh, cleaning supplies. Um, uh, related to that is, um, I, I, folks may not be aware that um, hand sanitizer is actually banned in most uh, prisons and jails because of its because it has alcohol in it. Um, one of the asks uh, uh, from sort of folks inside and all of us has been that uh, the state and you know local facilities sort of waive that um, that restriction in light of the the crisis. Um, and and then the other point I just want to um highlight is that uh there are often also co-pays associated with medical care within uh prisons and jails. And we certainly don't want to be discouraging anyone from seeking medical assistance if they can. So one of the other really important measures is asking for uh local for facilities to and their, you know, any contracted uh medical providers to waive um, any such fees to ensure that uh, folks do are able to get care.
0: And so you know, the other thing I wanted to raise was to, like, you know, what are the demands that you know we and you know hundreds of other people are asking the governor um, and other public you know government officials to do?
1: Part of what I think is important to understand is that the governor is sort of uniquely positioned to make uh, sort of broad. Um, very impactful changes, um, more so than virtually any other public official. And, um, and it is for that reason that, you know, the calls to action have been directed, um, at him. Um, the, the sort of types of asks really fall into three buckets. So the first is really limiting, uh, new admissions to our detention centers Um, so that includes everything from urging law enforcement to take steps to uh, avoid unnecessary arrests to issue citations instead of taking people into custody Um, that also involves steps to limit pretrial detention so allowing people to remain in the community uh, when they have charges pending rather than incarcerating them um, and uh, and then another sort of bucket, if you will, of, of uh, asks relate to releasing people who are already in custody who are uh, who can safely be released to the community, with a particular focus on those who are uniquely vulnerable to serious harm if they contract the virus, like those who are over 60, those with um, underlying medical conditions. Um, releasing those who are already near um, the end of their uh, sentence so for example you know there are people who we already know are going to be released to the community in six months we need to depopulate our facilities as much as possible so there's so we're one of the asks and one of the is to really expedite those releases Um, and then and and you know in relation to that we're urging the various state agencies to work together to facilitate those releases. So one of the things that's important is we want to make sure that people are able to be released, but we also want to make sure that they're that is happening in a responsible and safe way and that we're coordinating the supports they need when they return to the community. The last uh, bucket of asks relate to uh, more concretely and transparently uh, addressing what is happening in our places of detention, that we've been, um, you know, places of detention tend to be very secretive and non-transparent. And so some of the asks have been extremely basic, like, let us know what you're doing. Tell us what the plan is you know, help us understand what you're doing to uh, maintain the safety of the people in your custody. Um, so it's a, it's a range of asks, um, but those are the sort of high level points.
0: And so you can also, you know, this is not just like a, a call that's been going on in Maryland. This has been, you know, really been a resounding call around the country. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what other states have been doing um, around this effort?
1: yeah i mean i think um one of the things that's been really sort of impactful about this is how much this crisis exposes the degree to which we um incarcerate people who could safely be in our communities and um and so what we're seeing around the country is are and um are really varied ways in which uh different states are are responding to um the need to Uh, protect, you know, uh, remove people from our our jails and prisons. So um, one, uh, you know, powerful example is that in New Jersey, um, there's an effort underway to to review um, and release, I think, um, close to um, a thousand people who are in the county jails on minor charges. in uh, Iowa, the parole board and the DOC are working together to expedite the release of 700 people in their prison system. Um, in states across the country, really, what we're seeing is, uh, you know, responses from courts and prison and jail officials um, that acknowledge how dangerous. Uh, the viruses, if it if it gets into um, our facilities, and I think it's important to highlight sort of the really, uh, you know, there's been a tremendous amount of advocacy ranging from really powerful, you know, direct action outside of places of detention to um, uh, lawsuits and litigation in uh, to try to help address the crisis.
0: So Sonia, well, um, how many people are we actually talking about in Maryland? How many people would be affected?
1: Tens of thousands of people. Um, You know, we have close to 20,000 people in our prison system, and then there are thousands more in our jails, um, and those are just the people in custody. But we're also talking about all of the staff and um, the other, you know, sort of uh, the other people that keep those systems operating. We're also talking about law enforcement officials who are uh, part of operating those systems. So there's really thousands and thousands of people who are very directly impacted by uh, what happens in our prisons
0: and jails. So Sonia, what do we want the public to do to help prevent this public health crisis in our prisons and jails in Maryland?
1: The number one thing every person can do is reaching out to their elected officials and particularly the governor and urging them to act. So that can involve uh, you know, emails and calls, it can also involve taking action uh, through whatever social media platform um, uh, a person is
0: involved with. Sonia, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, thank we understand that you're doing like a lot of, you know, really important work and we greatly appreciate the advocacy that um, you are doing on behalf of thousands of people who are from incarcerated in Maryland.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: And now we'll talk to Amy Cruz, our legal program manager and director of our election protection program. Hey, Amy, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. Thank you for having me. So, Amy, as of March 27th, what are the dates and things people should remember about the upcoming special 7th Congressional District election and the primary election?
2: We have um, two elections coming up. The seventh congressional uh, election, which is a special election and is going to be held on April 28th, that election will be done primarily by mail. Everyone will get their ballot. Every registered voter in the seventh district will get a ballot mailed to them. And then we have the um, June 2nd primary. This is the primary that was originally supposed to also be on April 28th. It's the primary that is both the presidential primary as well as a primary for local elections in some places. And that was moved to June 2nd, and that is the current date for our primary.
0: So Amy, about the seventh congressional special election, what are some of our concerns about that election?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So the um, seventh congressional special election is going to be held um, as a primarily vote by mail election. And I believe this is the first time that we've ever had an election like this in this way. Every registered voter is going to get a ballot mailed to them. And um, our primary concern is that there's going to be confusion around that, because people aren't used to getting a ballot mailed to them. So I think the the most important thing right now is to make sure that people understand um, what vote by mail is, and take um, take the opportunity to use that because it will be the safest way to vote because you won't have to leave your home. There will be a prepaid um, envelope, or you you won't have to put a stamp on it. Um, you can just mail it back, and so. I'm hoping that we'll see some investment from um, the state and then collaboration from organizations like the ACLU and other um, uh, voting rights organizations to get the word out so that people know um, that to expect a ballot coming. Now that's for just for um, the registered voters. I do also have a concern that if people do not have their address current with the State Board of Elections, that their their ballot will not be received. So um, another thing we want to urge people to do is to log on to the State Board of Elections website and make sure that your information there is correct and that especially the address is correct.
0: Thank you for that information, Amy. What are some of our concerns about the primary election on June 2nd?
2: The primary election um, definitely poses uh, more concerns because we're still not entirely sure what's going to happen. So a little bit of background is that um, we have several methods of voting here in Maryland uh, currently. And those include um, no excuse absentee voting. So you can vote by mail by requesting an absentee ballot. We have early voting. We now have same day registration, which should be allowed to people um, both during early voting and on election day. And we of course have election day where you can go in person and vote. And then we have provisional voting. And these are various methods that have, um, over the past several years, we've um, gained more access to having different ways to vote, which is great. Um, However, on March 17th, uh, Governor Hogan ordered that the primary election be moved to June 2nd, and he also, I believe, uh, implied that he would like that to be a normal election, but he asked the State Board of Elections to figure out the logistics and come up with a plan. And then this Wednesday, the State Board of Elections met, And you can actually log on to the State Board of Elections website and listen in on that meeting, um, where there was some um, lengthy discussion about what to do on June 2nd. They did vote um, to go to an all uh, vote by mail system. Um, And while we applaud their embracing of voting by mail, because especially during this pandemic, we need um, to be able to have the option to vote from our homes um, in a secure and safe way. Um, And we really do um, uh, congratulate them for being all in on um, encouraging people to vote by mail and sending registered voters ballots. Uh, We also understand that we need to have an in-person option. The people that we are concerned about who need a in-person voting option are people who um, need certain kinds of assistance at the polls. These include voters with disabilities, voters who need language assistance, um, anyone who doesn't receive their ballot, whether it's because they have unstable housing. um, There are plenty of people who are not in their homes right now due to COVID. There's um, voters who can't register between now and um, the primary day, either they don't have an identification card because um, MVA is closed and they can't get one, or they don't have internet. So there are some people who are going to need to utilize same-day registrations at the polls. And then there are inactive voters who are not going to get a ballot in the mail. And so they also need to have access um, to cast their ballot as well.
0: So Amy, while we are advocating for the release of people who are medically vulnerable in our prisons, our jails, and our detention centers, we also recognize that many of them are eligible voters. And, you know, the ACLU is always going to be committed to making sure that every eligible voter has access to the ballot. Can you talk about who some of those incarcerated people um, who are eligible voters are and what their voting rights are?
2: Yes, yeah, thank you for that question. Um, many of, uh, of the people who are currently in jails are actually eligible to vote. Those would be people who are pretrial, people who have not yet been convicted, um, and people who are there serving a sentence for a misdemeanor. And this is because the only people who cannot vote um, due to uh, uh, conviction are people who are serving uh, in a term of incarceration for a felony conviction. Those are the only people who can't vote. So many people who are in our jails um, and some in prisons do have the
0: right to vote. So Amy, what is the process for people who are currently incarcerated to be able to register to vote and cast a ballot?
2: Well, we currently do not have the infrastructure in Maryland's jails and prisons um, to uh, um, provide a a voting system for people inside. So the primary primary way for um, our incarcerated um, friends and family to vote would be uh, by absentee ballot. So they would request an absentee ballot to be sent um, to their place of incarceration. And then they will get a ballot mailed to them there and they can vote um, by mail.
0: So Amy, what are some actions that people can take to make sure that every eligible voter has safe access to the ballot?
2: Sure. I think that um, if you are a registered voter, um, first thing you should do is log on to the State Board of Elections website if you have internet and um, make sure that your information, your address is correct with the State Board of Elections and keep an eye out for um, a ballot in the mail. And understand that for these elections, you will um, possibly be getting the actual ballot in the mail and that is real and you can vote and send it back by mail. The second is to um, help us uh, get the word out about um, voting by mail. Um, and about the importance of participating in this election despite um, this horrible public health emergency that we're in. And to the extent that uh, we can all spread the word about registering to vote online um, and voting by mail, the more people that we can get voting by mail, the fewer people who are going to need to go to in-person voting centers, and the more we're going to be able to have a um, very safe, very secure, and very accessible election for everyone in Maryland.
0: Well, Amy, thank you so much for, you know, working on this issue so tirelessly, um, particularly during this COVID-19 crisis. I, I know I definitely appreciate it, and um, I know that, you know, people, voters across the state of Maryland also appreciate your your advocacy.
2: Well, thank you for this, and stay safe, everyone.
0: And now we'll talk to Nick Tychese-Steiner, a staff attorney for the ACLU of Maryland. So Nick, thank you for being on Thinking Freely to talk about the COVID-19 crisis. Thank you, Amber. So Nick, what action are we taking to address the situation in the ICE detention centers in Maryland?
3: We are suing the Worcester County Detention Center and... Uh, the Howard County Detention Center to get two medically vulnerable immigration detainees out of immigration detention. Uh, it, the case is called Correas v. Bounds, um, and the two plaintiffs both have underlying medical conditions that make them vulnerable to complications. Uh, related to COVID-19. One of them has diabetes, and the other has hypertension and some other underlying medical conditions. Uh, And because they have those underlying medical conditions, if they contract COVID-19, they are at severe risk of potentially dying. Um, In the case, we have a medical expert, um, Dr. Mishori, who uh, has said that for for people like um, our plaintiffs uh, who are in detention in Worcester and Howard County, the only real uh, way to protect them and to keep them safe and healthy uh, is to have them released. and so that's that's the goal of the lawsuit is to have these two two people released um, in an effort to to try and pressure ice into taking broader steps and more um, protective steps of the people that, is, that are in their custody so that they can start releasing people who um, are medically vulnerable to COVID-19. And it's an extremely urgent issue because every day there are more cases of COVID-19. And once it hits an immigration detention center or a jail or a prison, the the outbreak is going to take a very bad turn, um, and people like our plaintiffs are really at risk of dying unless they're released.
0: And Nick, what have we heard about um, the testing within ICE um, detention facilities or for for the COVID nineteen virus?
3: Yeah, the uh, the testing I think is really limited. I mean, this is not just a problem in immigration detention centers or jails or prisons. It's it's a broader national problem, just the limited number of tests that are happening. And so it's likely the number of COVID-19 cases that exist are way higher than um, what is being reported just because of the under-testing. And that reality exists in the immigration detention centers as well. And what is particularly concerning is how uh, the detention centers in Maryland are woefully Unprepared for an outbreak. Um, there is there isn't much um, there isn't much medical supplies. There isn't hand sanitizer, uh, face masks, things that would help prevent a spread of COVID-19 in the detention center, and that is extremely problematic for uh, the medically vulnerable population.
0: And, you know, Nick, can you tell us a little bit about the experiences that you've heard from our plaintiffs, and also from people who, um, other people who are inside these ICE detention centers?
3: Yes. Yeah, so I, I think, as as most would expect, the medical care that exists in jails, prisons, and detention centers is um, lacking, um, and so anybody who has some kind of issue. Um, ha, has to go jump through a whole bunch of hoops in order to get treatment. The 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 detention centers, I think, are very very ill prepared for a major outbreak like COVID-19 once it hits a detention center, and the consequences fall on the detainee population.
0: Yes, Nick, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but we really want to make sure that this is like a a test uh, case that will hopefully have national implications, um, you know, for for the rest of people who are in isolation centers across the nation.
3: Yes, so the national ACLU has been involved in a lot of these kinds of cases across the country. Um, The first one was filed in Washington State, um, but there have been, in addition to the Maryland case, there's also... Uh, there's also a case in New York, Massachusetts, um, California, um, Pennsylvania. So these these cases are bringing essentially the same claims in in each place, trying to get people out of immigration detention during this pandemic. Um, unfortunately, in Washington State, the the temporary restraining order to get folks out of immigration detention there uh, was denied. Um, and so one of the, the major efforts that is happening by the ACLU across the country is, is to to hopefully get a win um, to start getting people released from detention while the, um, the pandemic is still in its early stages um, before it becomes a major, major problem in um, these immigration detention centers.
0: So Nick, what do you want people to know about this case and to do to help put pressure to release people who are medically vulnerable in our ICE detention centers?
3: Yes, I mean, I think there are certain pressure points that exist that um, would be a great place for folks to Apply pressure and ask for uh, conditions to be made better in in prisons and jails. Um, the the main place I think is to make requests of Governor Hogan. Um, he is he is able to make the prisons and jails safer in Maryland um, to prevent an outbreak of COVID 19. And the three immigration detention centers are. Wings in um, in in jails in three different counties in Maryland. So, if Governor Hogan is is really actually concerned about the prison population containing the COVID nineteen wow. pandemic from spreading further, um, he should take broader efforts to make sure that the health and safety of the prison um, and jail population. Um, is that they're safe? Um, make sure that they're safe. And I think if an outbreak does occur in uh, an immigration detention center or a jail or prison, uh, that is going to put a very hard strain on the um, on our healthcare system and our hospitals because an outbreak in one of those settings where everybody is close in close quarters to each other and uh, it's going to spread very rapidly, and there's going to be a huge surge of the number of of patients that will need treatment um, and This is dangerous um, if if further measures aren't taken at a at a at a statewide level and Finally, I think we should all be very supportive of our medical community there at the front lines here, um, treating people with COVID-19 and putting themselves at risk. Um, and I think we should be doing everything in our power to make sure that the number of cases that, um, that crop up don't um, overwhelm the hospitals and ability for our state to, to treat people.
0: So, Nick, you know, during this COVID-19 crisis, we've seen a real spectrum of responses, um, you know, in our immigration court system, you know, from, you know, some judges who wanted to close and really protect the health and well-being of our immigrant population, as well as lawyers and staff. And then, unfortunately, we've seen the exact opposite response from some judges. Um, Can you talk about some of the uh, responses that we've done uh, to address that issue?
3: Yes. So before the Baltimore Immigration Court closed because of COVID-19, there was one particularly problematic judge, Judge Crosland, who was blanketly denying uh, motions to continue that were filed by immigration uh, lawyers. Um, Motions to continue are basically an ask of the court to postpone a hearing Um, so right around the time when the outbreak was really starting to become serious, a lot of immigration lawyers were asking to postpone hearings that were coming up so that they wouldn't have to, A, they themselves go physically into the courthouse and B, bring their clients with them and risk exposure to COVID-19. Um, So what we did with with Judge Crosland was file an um, administrative complaint against him for just blanketly denying these motions to continue uh, and forcing everybody to come in, um, which to us is very irresponsible uh, and uh, ignoring some of the guidance and recommendations that public health experts were uh, making at the time and still are making. Um, and even though the immigration courts now have closed, um, for the most part, there still are lasting consequences for what Judge Croslin has done. Uh, in one particular case, um, one immigration lawyer's, uh, client was worried of contracting COVID-19, so asked this lawyer to... Um, go before Judge Crosland and say that he wouldn't, that this client wouldn't be there in the courthouse um, for his hearing because um, he was concerned that he would contract COVID-19 and then spread it to his family. Uh, and when this immigration lawyer made made that request to postpone the hearing, uh, Judge Crosland rejected it and instead ordered him removed and ordered him to be deported. Uh, and so now this individual is going to have to challenge that order of removal um because Judge Croslin didn't want to postpone the hearing uh and then and then, for another immigration lawyer, there he denied um postponements on hearings, even though this immigration practitioner is is in a vulnerable population, and when she said that in her um in her legal filing that she's in a vulnerable population and didn't feel comfortable going into the physically into the courthouse, um, Judge Crosland just rejected it. And so, uh, and, and this was all before the courts had closed. So, so since then, that immigration practitioner did not have to physically go in because the courts have now closed. But had they not done that, she would have had to go in.
0: That's really awful that any you know, judge or government official is not heeding to the, the medical recommendations that we've had you know, from, our, from our medical community about what are the, the real steps we can take to help prevent the spread of this virus, because nobody wants to be living in an all out outbreak of this, of this virus. Well, thank you, Nick, so much for joining us. Um, I know you've worked—you know—many tireless nights um, already during this COVID nineteen crisis, um, advocating for um, immigrants, civil rights, and civil liberties, and their—you know—just their basic humanity. Um, And I really appreciate it, and I think our listeners do as well.
3: Thank you, Amber.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to rate and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. Visit our website, aclu-md.org, to learn how you can take action to protect the public health for all and to defend our rights. This show was recorded at my house in Baltimore, Maryland, because we too are practicing social distancing and was recorded on Piscataway Native American land. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time.